calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hi, I'm Ron Remkes with CFA Institute. Uh, we're here for another episode of Take 15. Today we're joined by uh, Mark Faber, editor of the Gloom, Boom, and Doom Report. Thanks, Mark, for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, Mark, I'd like to sort of set up the expectations for our audience a little bit. Could you just sort of start with sort of a brief definition of what you mean by inflation? Because that's not always consistent with what other economists uh, define as inflation. There's an argument uh, among economists about what consists inflation. Narrowly defined by some people is that uh, it's an increase of consumer prices. I look at it more as an increase in the quantity of money and the quantity of credit, the credit volume. And then there are various symptoms of this inflation. One of them is an increase in consumer prices, but another one can be, say, an increase in real estate prices. It can be an increase in equity prices. can be an increase even in bond prices or an increase in commodity prices or paintings or collectibles or commodities such as gold and so forth. So when you drop dollar bills into a system, you don't know where the money will flow to. It can also create, if we have a global economy, you drop dollar bills in the US, it can create inflation in Vietnam and in India and in China and not so much in the United States. So I look at inflation as being essentially a monetary phenomenon that is visible in the credit growth of a system and the money supply growth. Okay. So how has the uh, creation of uh, money and credit growth impacted uh, the commodity uh, super cycle that we've seen? And, and how has it played out in both the demand and the supply side? Well, in the first instance, Commodity prices were very high in 1980. So when, when we had credit growth in the 80s and 90s, commodity prices didn't respond on the upside because as a result of the commodities boom in the 70s, we had a very large expansion of commodity supplies in the oil industry and also in other sectors of the commodity markets. But by year 2000, uh, Obviously, with uh, the incremental demand for raw materials coming from China and with commodity prices having been in a bear market since 1980 and some actually since 1973, uh, there wasn't a lot of supply. So obviously prices went up partly because of the incremental demand from China, but also partly because of money printing. And I would argue that also food prices are elevated Partly weather-related, but also partly related to essentially money printing. Absolutely. And, of course, a big component of this 
uh, commodity cycle is China and the role that it's played in terms of being the marginal buyer of sure. these commodities. Where, you know, we, we've seen that sort of historically up till now. Where do you see China today and, and how do you think things will evolve for China over the next, say, five years? Well, the economic achievements of China are unprecedented uh, in the sense that they've been achieved in a very short period of time. Say, the first time I went to China was in the early 80s, there was nothing at all. And even in 1990, uh, Shanghai was like a medieval city with hardly any lights, no taxis, uh, no TVs, uh, people were on bicycles, and, to the, and today, it's a very modern city. This is amazing in 20 years that you can progress that much. And uh, I think that China, everything being equal in terms of geopolitical situation will continue to grow. But you, you understand, we don't know. There could be social issues in China. There could be geopolitical issues in China and so forth and so on. So. I would be somewhat uh, careful about China. And for sure, the growth rate of uh, trend-wise around 10% per annum is going to slow down to eventually maybe a trend line growth of 6-7% maximum, maximum, and eventually a trend line growth of maybe only 2-3% because of the worsening demographics. Do you see any sort of uh, hard landing in the future? I know a lot of people debate the soft landing, hard landing issue. Well, if you look at the his economic history of the United States, we had essentially 1800 to today. How many financial crises? How many economic crises? We even had a civil war. The U.S. went through World War One, through the Depression, through World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and so forth. I mean. To believe that an economy will always grow at 10% regardless is just fantasy. It's not realistic. Rapidly expanding economies are characterized by relatively violent setbacks. And the Chinese economy will have meaningful setbacks along the way. There's no question about this. It doesn't mean that they are permanent. They can be cyclical in nature. But who knows? They could be also longer lasting. Um, so a lot of the growth and development in the developing markets, especially with China, um, has been substantial. And what we're now starting to see is um, an increasing uh, trade among these developing nations. And you had a really interesting uh, exhibit earlier that you spoke of. I was wondering if you could talk to that a little bit for our audience. Well, I think the original idea of globalization was an Anglo-Saxon idea with the view that if you opened the world, you would have uh, Western companies selling their goods to essentially new markets. Because in the Western world, as you know, the markets are saturated. So if the Vietnamese market opens up or the Indian market opens up, it's good for Coca-Cola. There's no question about this. And McDonald's. And for some companies, it's been very good, principally uh, luxury manufacturers in Europe. But in this process of globalization, what was overlooked is that as China grew rapidly, their demand for commodities increased. They had to import 
commodities from Brazil and Australia and uh, Africa, Central Asia, the Middle East. So they started also to sell goods to these countries. In the other Asian countries, the same. The other oil importers like Koreans and the Taiwanese. And so actually, the share of G7 countries in global trade over the last 12 years has declined from roughly 50% to slightly over 30%, whereas the share of emerging economies has grown from roughly 50% to roughly 70%. So what you have essentially an, is a new trading system that consists of China buying from Brazil, but also selling to Brazil and bypassing the U.S. So what that means then is uh, if the developing or the developed world, the G7, uh, encounters some difficult growth, it won't actually harm these countries as much. It will harm them, but maybe not as much as everybody always says. What would harm really the emerging market block is if there was a meaningful slowdown in economic growth in China, then uh, their demand for commodities uh, would decline. The prices of industrial commodities would decline. The commodity producers would be hit, hit and they would have less money to buy goods from China, and so you would have a downward spiral in global trade, essentially. Okay. As happened in 2008, by the way. Right. So let's, let's turn our attention now to uh, the EU. Uh, obviously, they've got a substantial crisis on their hands. Uh, they've got over-indebted nations and struggling economies. What can the EU do to sort of resolve this issue and move forward in a healthy way? Well, they can print money, and the countries that are financially sound can support essentially some of the peripheral countries. But I think the whole system is uh, relatively moribund, and uh, that uh, the rich countries, notably Germany, does not have the money to support the whole EU. And so some losses will have to be taken on uh, sovereign bonds in Europe, either through inflation, inflating these uh, debts away, or through defaults. All right, so we started uh, the conversation talking about your definition of inflation. So let's finish talking about the Fed and what they are doing and what you expect to happen uh, going forward and what they can do to, to help resolve the situation. Well, basically, I don't believe that with monetary measures you solve problems. But I admit that if you have a problem and you print money, you can postpone the problem. But you postpone the problem and it becomes a bigger problem. You understand? In life, the best is to address problems and not to postpone them. It's like if you're sick. The best is to attend to your sickness and not to think that it will automatically get better because if it's a serious sickness, it can get much worse. So I think that uh, the Fed has essentially uh, pursued a rather disastrous monetary policy that has been very damaging to the United States and encouraged bubbles where uh, the majority of people are impoverished and a few benefit and uh, that uh, the Fed will actually pursue this policy also in future. They will print more money, and the other central banks around the world will do the same. 
and that this will lead to very high volatility in asset markets because the flood of money will go into one asset class like the Nasdaq first after 96 and then into the housing market, then into commodities, then they created a bubble in emerging markets and then emerging market currencies and so forth. And maybe we'll have again a bubble in equities in some form somewhere. Uh, as you know, now the international investors, they think the U.S. is not perfect, but that it is much better than the other markets. So maybe the U.S. market continues to rally for a while. Mm -hmm. Maybe we also could have a bubble in gold or a bubble in uh, art prices and so forth. So we probably had a bubble in wine prices already. Uh, it's very tough to say where will the next big bubble be. I see two big bubbles. One is in treasury bonds, but you know, it's like Nasdaq in December 99, it still went up 30% before it entirely collapsed. Right. So treasury bonds could still rally before they completely implode. And the second big bubble is in government spending. The fiscal deficits are out of control and neither the Democrats nor the Republicans will really address them. They'll come to an agreement at the end of the year, a budget agreement that will be backloaded. In other words, all the cuts will happen in 10 years' time. Nothing will happen this year, and the tax increases will also be backloaded. Right. So I think that we're headed into another crisis, but I wouldn't know when. It could be tomorrow, could be in five years, could be in 10 years. And in the meantime, you have very volatile markets. In a traditional system, the safest is to own cash. But in this environment of money printing, cash may be undesirable to hold. You may have to hold some assets. I recommend uh, a diversification between real estate and equities, cash and bonds and gold. Well, thank you so much for joining well, us tonight, Mark. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank and uh, thank you for joining us as well. And be sure to check out all of our content on the Enterprise Investing uh, blog, as well as cfainstitute.org. Thank you. Copyright 2012 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.